This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the only investment research platform built for the investor. With traditional research vendors, the diligence process is slow, fragmented, and expensive. That leaves investors competing on how well they aggregate data, not on their unique ability to analyze insights and make great investment decisions. Tegas offers an end-to-end platform with all the data you need to get up to speed on a company or on a market, with up-to-date financials, customizable models, management and culture checks, and of course, a vast and growing library of expert call transcripts. Tegas is changing the world of expert research and the investment process. Learn more and get your free trial at tegas.com slash Patrick. Today's episode is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. I think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the technology conglomerate Samsung. It was only Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon that ranked higher than Samsung in Interbrand's latest brand value rankings. Samsung being the fifth most valuable brand in the world. And it's everywhere around us. Our phones, our TVs, our refrigerators, our washing machines. You see Samsung everywhere. But it's not those finished products that are driving the majority of profits for Samsung. To break down Samsung, I'm joined by David Samra, Managing Director and Founding Partner of the Artisan Partners International Value Team. We go inside this vertically integrated technology giant We talk about the history of the business, the manufacturing DNA, and what it means to create hardware components and how creating those hardware components unlocks some major opportunities in the smartphone market for Samsung. We also get into the management history, what K.H. Lee took from his early days managing this business and some of the opportunistic acquisitions that he made and how that really shaped the culture, specifically around capital allocation and how they manage the balance sheet. This one is really interesting because we all know Samsung the brand, but I think Samsung the business is very different than what I expected. So please enjoy this breakdown on Samsung. Quick note before the episode, we wanted to highlight Columbia Student Investment Management Association is hosting the 27th annual conference 
That's going to be in New York on Friday, February 9th. You have keynote speakers like John Griffin from Blue Ridge, Ian McKinnon from Sandia, Jan Hummel from Paradigm, Sally Krawcheck from Elevest. It's a long list of interesting speakers, panels. Again, that's going to be in New York on Friday, February 9th. If you're interested in tickets, please find a link in the show notes. Scroll down, look for the CSIMA conference. And if you plan on going, please reach out. Let me know. I would love to say hello if you are there. All right, David, I am excited to break down Samsung. It is a behemoth. And I've listened to you speak before. You have a background as a value investor. And you always preach boots on the ground, really understanding these businesses, the people and the things in and around them. And Samsung just does so much. It's the things we see day to day with the TVs and the refrigerators. But it's also a lot of the components within those pieces of hardware. And I'm just curious, at the highest of level, when you think about Samsung as a business and as an investor, how do you define it? How do you think about it? How do you just categorize this one relative to all the other pure plays that we're used to seeing and things that we're used to breaking down on this particular show? Well, it's a very relevant question, mainly because the consumer electronics brand is so strong, yet that's not where the bulk of the profits are generated. Everybody knows the Samsung brand. In fact, Interbrand, which ranks the most popular brands in the world, this is the fourth year in a row that they've ranked the Samsung brand in the top five. So the company is well known for televisions, home appliances, and probably best known for its cell phones. Yet in most years, those businesses represent less than 30% of the profits. Most of the profits come from the components that power these devices. That's where the other 70% comes from. And that's how we think about and how we define all of the businesses we invest in. Where do the profits come from? Where are today's profits generated? But more importantly, where will tomorrow's profits be generated? And with a very high degree of certainty, future profits will be even significantly more generated, mainly because the handset business is mature at this point. But in the future, the components businesses will generate more profits than the consumer electronics part of the business, if I can categorize it that way. And just to provide you with a little bit of a breakdown, the memory business, Samsung is the world's largest manufacturer of DRAM and NAND, generated 55% of profit in 2022. The mobile phone business generated another 25% of profits. And then they have another business that makes display panels. So when you're looking at your computer or you're looking at your phone, that display that you're looking at is most likely manufactured by Samsung, even your Apple phone. That generates another 14% of profits. So all the other consumer electronics that everybody looks at while they're watching their football game on Sunday it's meaningless. It generates 3% of profits. So really, that's how we define that business. And business observers would say this is a somewhat unique company because of its vertical integration. Generally, if you look at a consumer, an old school consumer electronics company, Sony, maybe Panasonic, the big Japanese manufacturers, they would supply their own components, but definitely wouldn't have a significant amount of third-party sales from their component manufacturing. Whereas, as you can see from Samsung's breakdown, most of their profits actually come from those third-party sales. 
yet they're vertically integrated. And the biggest business is obviously making handsets. But that's an accident of history and an accident of really the way cell phones developed many, many miles away where Apple has this closed ecosystem and they have their own operating system that powers their devices. However, Google, in an effort to grow its search business, developed the Android system where they preferred to push out its operating system to third-party handset manufacturers. And given Samsung's scale and the manufacturing of components, so that would be memory, semiconductors, application processors, and screens, they were in an incredibly strong position to grow and build a very, very large handset business. So it's an accident that they are this big, large, vertically integrated company. But I think kudos to the management of Samsung for recognizing that opportunity recognizing the fact that they had significant competitive advantages in that business and building it out. And that's where we are today. It's really interesting to hear that breakdown in all of the research that I did. I saw divisions and segments, and most of them you're looking at sales numbers, not the profit numbers, and simply presenting it in that way with memory at 55% mobile at 25% display. A very simple way to look at this business. And your description of what they do, it rings true to something like an Amazon with AWS and where the majority of their profits come from and some similarities in terms of how they've been able to leverage what they built inside the organization and bring it outside the organization. And you tapped into it a little bit there. But I am curious about that history. It's massive within South Korea. North of 20% of South Korea's GDP comes from Samsung is what I read, which is incredible. So Can you bring us back a little bit up until that point in time? Where did the DNA come from in terms of building up that core capability to do everything that they do today? I think that that comparison to 20% of GDP is a little bit misleading because I think what they're referring to is revenue. And Samsung Electronics revenue to South Korea's GDP is about 11%. And then there are other chable or group companies that probably make up the rest of it to head towards that 20% number that you referred to. But it is somewhat remarkable when you internalize where we are in the United States. We've got a little over $23 trillion of GDP and the largest revenue company here is Walmart. And that comes to 3% of GDP. And it's somewhat instructive to consider this. And it gets back to the history of Samsung because stick yourself in the United States trying to build out a consumer electronics or a semiconductor business. And you've got this giant $23 trillion marketplace where everybody speaks the same language and you have one single legal system and 320 million wealthy people. And you have a big profit pool to aim at in a roughly simple way where you understand the culture and you understand the rules of business. Put yourself in a place like South Korea, you know, which is a trillion and a half of GDP and much smaller than the US, or in a place like France, for that matter, where companies like LVMH were built, and your domestic profit pool is tiny. So how do you take an area where you have a good understanding of the culture, you speak the language, you operate in the same time zone, and then you turn this into a massive competitive multinational business. That is, as Charlie Munger would say, a lollapalooza. 
that's an extraordinary outcome for a company that started in a small country. And just to simplify the history of this company without spending a lot of time on it, the company really started as a component manufacturer and then evolved into manufacturing its own consumer electronics, but really entered what is their largest business today when in the 1960s, there was a company that was started in South Korea that was basically poorly financed. And the third generation here, a fellow named K.H. Lee, who just recently passed, I think was the most powerful entrepreneur in the driving force behind the building of Samsung, actually recognized the future of memory semiconductors. They had been discovered in the 1960s to be used in calculators. And as electronics grew, the use of these memory semiconductors would grow significantly. And this fellow, K.H. Lee was his name, actually personally financed the purchase of this memory semiconductor operation and embarked on a multi-decade process of aggressively building it into the giant behemoth that it is today. Today's CEO, J.Y. Lee, is the son of K.H. Lee. So family-owned. Despite acquiring some of the businesses that run it today, it has remained inside the family over that time period. It was listed on the stock exchange, which diluted the family's ownership. And there have been, in the early years, a couple of capital increases that were necessary to fund what is a very capital-intensive business. And one of the things that KH Lee recognized, probably because he saw what happened to the original operation, right? It was poorly financed and wasn't going to survive. The one thing that he did recognize is being financially conservative in a capital-intensive business that's cyclical provides you with a distinct competitive advantage. And that financial conservatism remains today as a distinct characteristic of this company. And we could talk about it later, but is actually playing into the hands again of Samsung as we go through this current downturn. It's very interesting to me. I can flash back to five to seven years ago as I was sitting in a cyclical seat and one of my peers that covered cyclicals or it was at least considered a cyclical industry was the semiconductor analyst. And they view things very much in that framework. And it feels like things have shifted a bit over the years. And obviously, you've had major supply demand dynamic shifts and you had COVID and all different things that were playing into it. But when you think about Samsung over the course of the past maybe 25 years or so, and particularly in the memory business, has this been a business where there have been share gains that have been taking place? Have they been just naturally exposed to the growth of the industry and maybe just growing along with it? Is there anything unique in terms of what they've done within that industry as it relates to growth and their own share? The key to the business is it's capital intensive, manufacturing scale and to be at the leading edge of technology. So let's demystify leading edge of technology, because if you can't understand something at its very basic level, it's not worth doing. And the leading edge of technology for a memory chip basically means you can manufacture a smaller chip that uses less power and delivers the same or better capability. And that requires using the latest semiconductor manufacturing equipment. It requires building factories that are very large in scale. And that means hiring top-notch engineers focused on using those machines to get to the next level of 
die shrink. So what that means is your chip is getting smaller, faster than the competition. And that's what really has driven market share for Samsung. So this industry, the DRAM industry specifically, has consolidated over the last three decades down from 10 or 11 players down to three. So what caused that consolidation was some of the advantages that I alluded to earlier. Some companies simply weren't financed very well. And into an industry downturn, they didn't have the financial capabilities to survive. The business is very capital intensive and it's very hard for a board of directors to keep saying, we're going to invest more and more and more money into this business. And then shareholders are saying, well, what about the dividends? When are the dividends coming? Well, the dividends are going to come when we get to scale. Samsung, perhaps because it's family owned and controlled, had a lot more patience behind the time frame that was necessary to get to that point of scale. And they survived this consolidation. Hynix, which is the second largest player, is also a South Korean company, survived through the generosity of the South Korean government, which bailed it out. And Micron, which is the third largest player, survived through the goodness of their shareholders that kept on funding rights offerings. So the market share today breaks down in the following way. Samsung is dominant with 43% market share. Hynix and Micron are much smaller with 27 and 23% market share. The second type of memory called NAND, and we could talk about what the difference is between those two, is much less consolidated. NAND is technologically less demanding and has lower capital intensity. And as a result is much more competitive. And you're seeing companies losing significant amounts of money in this downturn in NAND. Samsung has about a third of that market. A Japanese company called Kosha has 20%. And they've been working on a merger with a company inside of Western Digital, which has another 13%. The DRAM competitor, Hynix, has 18% share and also Micron trails these companies with a tiny 10% market share. So the profit pool is spread a little bit wider in NAND than it is in DRAM, but Samsung's scale in both of those businesses allows them to generate much higher profit margins than their next largest competitor. It generates a significant cash flow, operating cash flow, which then allows them to build out capacity to feed growth in that business. And protect what they've built and build upon that. When you discuss memory chips, just discussing chips and semiconductors in general, my mind immediately goes to names that I hear about, like NVIDIA. So where does what Samsung does with memory chips, how does that compare to what NVIDIA is doing with chips? And are they overlapping in some of the same markets? This is going to be the question for some of the novices or tourists in the semiconductor space in terms of where there's overlap and where there's differences. There are all sorts of semiconductors out in the marketplace. NVIDIA, Texas Instruments, Intel, Qualcomm, they mainly make processing chips, chips that compute, whereas DRAM and NAND are chips that provide memory, meaning you can store information on these chips. And the difference between DRAM and NAND is DRAM is a chip that operates while the computer is on. And as information is moving back and forth between the processing chip and a temporary storage chip, whereas NAND is effectively a solid state hard drive. And NAND 
is slowly but surely, and that's what's driving some of the demand for these chips, NAND is taking market share from traditional hard drives. So the products that use these chips, the use case, are smartphones, personal computers, servers, autos, and any other IoT. People like to use these terms, Internet of Things, any other product that requires some information to be stored. And as these products become larger and more complex, they demand more storage and more processing power. So these application processors, such as NVIDIA's AI chips, are basically the highest powered processing chips. And guess what? In order for those to function well, they require much more memory. For example, just to start with history, the way the volumes are measured in the DRAM industry is in eight gigabit chips. So that's the standard volume-based measurement for memory semiconductors. And over the past 10 years, DRAM volumes have grown at 23% per year, while NAND, because it's grown a lot faster, because it's not only growing along with these products, but also taking market share from hard drives has grown at 37% per year. And though those growth rates look pretty high, and you might be skeptical about what it looks like in the future, we think that the future here is pretty bright. For example, a chat GPT-based server requires five times more memory on average than a standard server. And an L5 fully autonomous vehicle requires greater than 30 times more DRAM and over 100 times more NAND than an internal combustion engine vehicle. And if edge computing becomes a necessity for AI, things start to get really interesting for Samsung because more memory will be required in a new generation of mobile phones and personal computers. In fact, you saw recently that Microsoft released Copilot that has to be used with Windows 10, and you need a device with a certain amount of processing and memory capacity in order to use Windows 10. So this potentially gets very interesting for Samsung because if there is a refresh cycle across the hardware endpoint spectrum, you're not only selling a lot more DRAM and NAND, but you're selling a whole new set of handsets. And as new personal computers get sold, you're selling new screens and more DRAM and more NAND. So a refresh cycle not only takes the baseline growth into this company, but also plays into the company's vertical integration. Absolutely. And when You talk about this being 55% of the business. I immediately think about, okay, you have the memory chip makers, you have the processing chip makers. What has stopped them moving onto one another's turf? And I know these are incredibly complex, long cycles to develop these chips on both sides of the equation. But have there ever been risks associated with that? Or has Samsung ever tried to move into the processing world? Has NVIDIA ever tried to move into the memory world? And how are those relationships between what ultimately are compatible components that fit into the end output, but could obviously be seen as there's turf that you want to protect? Well, Samsung is one of the largest manufacturers of application processors in the world. And for their own handsets and for third-party mobile phone manufacturers, mainly the Chinese manufacturers, Apple designs its own chips but outsources the manufacturing to TSMC, which is the largest foundry company in the world. And Samsung is the second largest manufacturer of CMOS chips 
for camera lenses, which are obviously used in their own cellular phones. Sony is the other large manufacturer in that business and also used for third-party cellular phones. And one of the interesting insights, people don't like to invest in hardware companies. Product life cycles are pretty short. But one of the biggest insights that you can take from understanding both TSMC and Samsung is there's only a certain amount of leading edge manufacturing capability for application processors. There are two big capacity providers. One is TSMC, and most of their leading edge capacity is taken up by Apple. In other words, I alluded to this earlier, if Google wanted to grow its Pixel business very aggressively, there are only two places to go. One is TSMC, and guess what? They're sold out. And Apple might not take kindly at TSMC taking in a big new competitive customer that's vertically integrated. And the only other place to go is Samsung. So how is Pixel going or Huawei or some of the other Chinese manufacturers going to build a big handset business at the top end of the handset market, which is where all the profit is? If you look at the Chinese manufacturers, they don't make any money. And actually, if they started paying the royalties for the IP that they use, they would be losing money. So really, the only profit pool in the handset business is shared between Apple and Samsung. And guess what? There's no way that you can compete with them simply because there is no manufacturing capacity available for you to manufacture those phones. So while others get worried and concerned about whether or not Samsung's handset business is going to be there in four or five years, I don't really worry about that that much. Whether or not it's going to grow, that's a question that you have to think about. But whether or not it's going to be there, it generates about $10 billion a year in free cash flow. I think that's a pretty steady, just slow-growing number. Very interesting dynamics across the space, just in terms of how the industry is structured. You've seen this consolidation where, to your point, there just isn't that much capacity or the capacity is controlled by select suppliers, but also select customers when it comes to Apple. Qualcomm's another huge foundry customer. And you see this dynamic So one of the things that we haven't talked about at Samsung is that it has a foundry business. It's only 10% of the profits, so we don't talk about it that much, but it is growing 20% per year and really is the only other viable competitor to TSMC out in that space. So companies like Qualcomm are increasingly using Samsung to manufacture their leading edge application processors and other semiconductors. And how much disparity is there in the margin profile between divisions? I know the sales numbers and just knowing the sales numbers relative to what you gave me in terms of the profit numbers, there is a pretty big gap. Maybe just take the memory business. What does that margin profile look like for them? And has that swung much just in terms of trends over time? Has it been fairly stable? Well, the manufacturer and part of the reason why you're able... Buffett says, I'd rather have a volatile 15 rather than a steady 10. And Samsung epitomizes the volatile 15th because it's a cyclical business. So the DRAM business towards the top of its profitability level tends to generate margins at 35 or 40%. And towards the bottom generates margins of 5 to 10%. Very rarely does it lose money in DRAM. While Hynix and Micron, as they are today, lose significant amounts of money at the bottom of the cycle. And, and the difference there is what I alluded to earlier really is scale and manufacturing capability. Capacity in the business tends to be added in large increments because you want to manufacture at scale. And the business has its ups and downs. And the smaller competitors, Hynix and Micron, 
really only have the capital and shareholder enthusiasm behind investing in new capacity when things are very good. So everybody tends to add capacity at the same time. So you have these big increments of capacity that come in. And the lead times in this business are very long. It takes many months between the time you start manufacturing a semiconductor with this big piece of silicon to the time the actual chips come out of the end, all fully packaged and ready to go. And between that and these big increments of capacity, if there are any wobbles in terms of demand, you tend to get these very big down cycles. So that's what causes these ups and downs in the business. And of course, that hurts price. So earlier we talked about the volume growth and volume growth has continued all the way through the downturn, but it does hurt price. In fact, the selling price for an eight gigabit DRAM last year fell significantly from a little over $3, almost three and a quarter down to $1.70. And NAND went from 71 cents to 39 cents. But what that does, and we've seen this happen over several cycles, is it kicks in the traditional dynamic that exists in any commodity-oriented business. When the price of a commodity falls below the marginal cost of production, that does two things. One, it induces demand, and two, it reduces supply. And let's talk again about Samsung's competitive advantage. In this case, in this downturn, in the current downturn we're going through, both Hynix and Micron are losing significant amounts of money and have had to cut back their capital spending. Samsung, on the other hand, has that handset business that generates $10 billion worth of free cash flow and carries about $100 billion worth of net cash on the balance sheet. We'll go back to KH Lee. What did he discover when he bought this business? That in a downturn, you need to be very well capitalized. And so what's happening is Samsung is investing in the next generation of manufacturing technology. These machines are called EUV. There's only a single manufacturer of those machines called ASML, ASM lithography. And interestingly, many years ago, Samsung and a few other large semiconductor manufacturers helped capitalize ASM to provide them with enough money to develop these EUV machines. And they also help subsidize their R&D. What do they get in exchange? Well, they get the first EUV machines that come out. And these machines aren't cheap. These machines cost 170 million bucks each, roughly. Take four airplanes to move them. That's how complicated they are. And bespoke manufacturing facilities to operate them. And they're incredibly complicated to operate. And this business is all about manufacturing yields. And it takes months, if not over a year, to try to figure out how to get these things to work. And as a result, going into this downturn, Samsung had started the process of building out its EUV manufacturing capability and have continued to invest all the way through the downturn. So as you come out of the downturn and customers are looking for the next leading edge of technology, smaller chips that use less power with more capability, Samsung stands to not only gain market share, but because you're selling the leading edge chips, which sell at a higher price, you will not only gain market share, but your level of profitability will be much higher. So the same dynamic that has existed since KH Lee purchased this company and recognized what the true competitive advantages are still remain inside Samsung Electronics today. 
And we think the combination of growth in volume coming out of this cyclical downturn and their ability to gain market share through investing at the leading edge of technology puts this company in a place to significantly grow its normalized profits coming out of that memory business. And that share gain, will that continue to come at those competitors, which you've referenced several times, those local competitors? Is there potential for them to bring those chips into different markets or take share in any other segment of the semiconductor space? Well, it really gets back to that foundry business where EUV is very relevant there as well. One of the other large companies that had funded ASML was TSMC. The three largest purchasers of semiconductor manufacturing equipment in the world are TSMC and Samsung, both which last year spent circa $25 billion on capital spending. And then there's Intel. And TSMC and Samsung are spending significant amounts of money in their foundry businesses. TSMC's $25 billion is spent completely devoted to foundry, whereas about $13 billion of Samsung's capital spending is devoted to its foundry business. And the investment in EUV manufacturing capability will keep Samsung at that leading edge of technology and help them. Their foundry business is growing at 20% per year. Nobody really pays attention to it because it's pretty small in the scheme of things. But five, six years, seven years from now, that business will be significant and far less cyclical than the memory business. And I think you laid out really interesting use case for the products, the mobile business, the consumer business. Is that really how you think about it internally, almost as a cash cow that can fund the growing of the, maybe not call it moat necessarily, but growing the barriers to entry, growing the leading edge capabilities within the separate businesses? I wanted to dive into that a little bit because it's so much of what you see from Samsung on a day-to-day basis. But just how do you think about that strategically as an investor? The handset business was opportunistic on their part. I guess if I could recharacterize what I said earlier in a slightly different way. And I have mixed feelings about that business. While it's nice and it generates free cash flow at this point, just like Apple, that market is fully penetrated and volumes aren't really growing. So you'll go through some refresh cycles. On the other hand, if you are Apple and you have a need to manufacture your application processors, Are you going to give that business to TSMC or are you going to give it to Samsung? If you give it to Samsung, you're feeding the capability of your competitor. And if you observe closely the technology developments in the handset business, Samsung has consistently led Apple in terms of hardware development. Their cameras are better. Samsung's had foldable phones for two years and Apple's got nothing. So Samsung not only invests at the leading edge of technology in the manufacture of memory semiconductors, but also invests at the leading edge of technology in displays. We talked a little bit about that earlier. So hence, they have these OLED foldable displays, and they invest at the leading edge of technology in terms of camera sensors. And they use all of those to enhance the value proposition of their cell phones. And it keeps them well ahead of the competition in that business. But it also keeps them, if Samsung uses its own application processors for its cell phone business and doesn't use Qualcomm, does Qualcomm really want to use Samsung's foundry business? They say that there are walls divided between these businesses, but I really do think, and I think Intel will have some of these same issues as they try to build out their foundry business. 
that would they have been better off if they had stayed out of the handset business? It's not really clear to me. Is it just if you had the option of tomorrow them being out of the handset business, do you think that would be a preferable option? Binary choice? I think if the foundry business has any future, and by the way, their application processor business, because effectively they're competing with Qualcomm in that business, and they could develop processors that are sold to other third-party handset manufacturers. I think if I felt more confident about the future of those businesses, I would say it would be sensible to get out of the handset manufacturing business. And then on the other hand, it drives the brand. It may be that some of the R&D done for the handset business trickles down into those other businesses. It's very, very hard for me to tell whether or not they would be better or worse off. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of variables that go into it, and some are easier to measure than others. But it's an interesting thought exercise. There's a lot of market cap at TSMC, and there's a much higher multiple. Yeah, that's ultimately the path that I was going down just in terms of the value that might be unlocked. But it's not divisible. It's all fully integrated. And the political and commercial dynamics behind Samsung, it's really not practically possible. The walls are always theoretical in terms of what exists inside. When you do put it all together, how do you think about this in a consolidated way as a business model? You have so many moving parts. Do you look at it in a particular way where you say, I think on a consolidated basis, this could do X percentage in terms of sales growth from year to year or over a certain period of time? How do you think about it just holistically as a business? Well, the real driver of value in the future is going to be the semiconductor operations. So our focus is firmly there. Like I said, the handset business is a great business, but doesn't operate in China. So you have to look at their market position outside of China which is about 26%. But I think that the real dynamic to consider there is they share the profit pool at the high end of the market with Apple. And for the reasons that I discussed earlier, nobody can really compete there. Huawei, for geopolitical reasons, might take some market share in China itself away from Apple, but that in the end will benefit the component supply operations of Samsung if that happens. But the handset business it's not likely to really grow. And so when we think about this company, because of the fact that that handset business is steady and that there was a unique set of circumstances that the company was able to exploit that built that profit pool, we really don't think about it as a vertically integrated business. We just think about the future growth that's going to come out of that semiconductor operation. And as value investors, we try to buy companies that trade at multiples that really don't reflect the strength of this business. So if you think about the growth rates that we talked about, and you think about that dominant, it's a seriously dominant position. They're spending circa $25 billion, where Micron and Hynix are spending somewhere in the area of 4 or $5 billion. So there is a huge gap in terms of what's happening in this business. So you get a company in a dominant position that's very well managed, that's conservatively financed. And what we try to do is we don't look at peak profitability in the semiconductor business, and we don't look at trough, but we try to normalize profitability somewhere in the middle. And generally, for much longer periods of time, they exist in the profit pool. And for very short periods of time, they exist out of the profit pool. So it amounts to roughly 85% of peak profits 
and from cycle to cycle where we estimate what the normalized profit pool should look like. And when you back out the cash and they have other ownership of other Samsung companies, on our estimates, we think the company trades at seven times pre-tax profits or roughly nine times earnings at the company's relatively low tax rate. And we can't find extraordinary multinational dominant operations around the globe that trade at less than 10 times earnings that have the ability to grow significantly. It's just not out there. It doesn't exist. And I think that there's a fair amount of myopia that exists for technology investors where they can buy lots of things that have good secular growth rates that don't have cyclical ups and downs, things like NVIDIA or software businesses that are much stickier and steadier. But the multiples that you pay in those businesses for us as value investors who are both trying to generate returns and manage risk, the types of multiples on those other businesses are so high that if you're going to invest two and a half billion dollars, you put yourself in a position to have fairly significant permanent loss of capital if something doesn't go right. My teaching was always for what you described in terms of that business being somewhat of a market multiple type business 15 times, especially when you back out and normalize it. Is that how you would think about it in terms of fair value? Just trying to back myself up and take that. We don't get many businesses that somebody would view as trading sub 10 times on the show. And you just don't come across many of them that aren't cigarette butts. And I'm just curious when you would think about fair value in that regard, where you would place that? Well, we have a framework that we're located in the United States or shareholders or US shareholders. And we have a framework where we think the long-term risk-free rate's around six. And if you invert that, that's 16.7 times PE ratio. And we think the average business should probably trade at roughly that level. Would you categorize this as an average business or an above average business or a below average business? We take some pretty obvious observations behind its market position, the growth rate, the return on capital, and the addressable market and how it's going to grow. And we put it firmly in the above average category. Now, there are risks, and I'm sure you're going to ask about those to this business. First is technology risk. So for example, there's a subcategory of memory chips called high bandwidth memory, where Hynix got the jump on Samsung for some somewhat odd reasons. But you run the risk that somebody comes up with a technology that is better than what Samsung is developing. Now, Samsung will catch up and they'll exceed Hynix eventually. How long would that catch up take if you just had that scenario play out? I'm curious. Well, the interesting thing is NVIDIA's AI chips took a lot of people by surprise at how quickly it took off. And Samsung has obviously an HBM form of memory, but just hadn't invested behind it because they didn't think the market would take off as quickly as it did. So they're currently ramping up capacity and should have far more capacity than Hynix in 2024. So it didn't take very long. And then the other risk is, especially in NAND, where a government you know, decides that manufacturing semiconductors is within the national interest and they heavily subsidize it. And we have worried about at the lower end of the quality spectrum, the Chinese government heavily subsidizing their manufacturing industry. And that situation has evolved in a very interesting way where the US government doesn't allow ASML, for example, to sell EUV machines to China, which should allow Samsung and Hynix and Micron to stay profitable at the leading edge. But on the other hand, it encourages a country like China to say, wow, this is even more of an imperative for us to have our own semiconductor manufacturing industry and to work harder 
to move up the technology stack over time. So that's the other big risk behind this business. And what is the regulatory climate like in South Korea? You mentioned just in terms of supporting some of the businesses there when they did need assistance, but also from an international shareholder perspective and how they treat external money coming in. Is there anything unique about South Korea and the dynamics there? Well, there's a fairly onerous disclosure process associated with registering to be able to trade in the South Korean market. So that keeps out smaller investors. I think that the biggest consideration is what you alluded to earlier is Samsung in the scheme of things is a national champion. When you have a company like L'Oreal in France, for example, or LVMH in France, those are national champions. But there's also a political dynamic. Samsung doesn't have unions, but it employs 125,000 people in South Korea just at Samsung Electronics, not to mention the other Samsung companies that are controlled by the Lee family. So there are corporate governance and political issues in investing in this company that simply don't exist with the, let's say, run-of-the-mill companies that you would invest in the United States. By the way, you know that companies like Google, the founders have super voting shares. So some of those same corporate governance issues in the United States are completely ignored while people use them as reasons not to invest in a place like South Korea. But they are real. Those issues are real and they should be considered. Has the unique dynamics of where it trades, that registration process, like you mentioned, has that resulted in a historical discount over longer time horizons where maybe it wouldn't necessarily get to that market multiple? Obviously, there's still a very big spread there. But has that impacted? And let's say if they were to introduce an ADR, which I don't think they have, correct me if I'm wrong. They do not. Do you think that would have a material impact? I think an ADR would have a material impact. But remember, there are state taxes in a family-owned company that have to be paid and are currently being paid on the death of KH Lee. So there are those considerations that have to be thought through. The development of South Korea is somewhat unique, but also similar to what happened in Japan, where there are several large, what are called chables, but basically family-controlled empires that make up a large Hyundai is another very large one that make up a lot of the GDP in South Korea. And a lot of the companies that are publicly traded and listed are controlled through a web of cross shareholdings by these large family owned companies. And the unwinding of that is uncertain. The corporate governance around that is not perfect. And I think generally speaking, South Korea suffers, has some level of discount on certain companies as a result of that. But there are companies like Coupang, which has an ADR, which is the Amazon of South Korea, which gets a very high valuation. Like I said, I think if Samsung at some point gets past some political and other estate planning issues, they could potentially put out an ADR, which I think would change the valuation dynamic significantly. And you have Buffett with the Japanese trading companies, which his interest in them might bring some attention to these unique conglomerate mix of unique corporate structure stories and maybe open things up. And in fact, there is envy, right? Because of some of the changes that the Tokyo Stock Exchange and the Japanese government have made to encourage companies to improve their returns in the Japanese market are also starting to take play politically in Korea. And if you start listening to what the politicians are saying, 
they're encouraging companies to pay more attention to their shareholders and provide better returns. So there is some of that groundswell. It's not as big as it is in Japan, but it is echoing across from Japan to South Korea. Very interesting and something to monitor. And it's fun to have these conversations about businesses outside the US. We have our specific mindset sometimes, it feels like. And you've seen really the death of conglomerates in the US. And it's interesting to see different business models, structures, just regulatory regimes and learn more about them. We wind down our conversations with a question just about lessons that you think could be applied elsewhere. So when you think about Samsung and having looked at this name for a long period of time, is there a lesson that stands out that you think you could apply elsewhere at other investments or something to really take away here as a lesson from the business? Well, let's just take KH Lee's lesson and let's apply it to some other companies. For example, in the middle of the pandemic, when people stopped flying, if you had an airline that had no debt and was able to go walk over to Boeing and put in a large order for new aircraft and run around Europe signing up airports for new slots while your competitors are Ryanair, while your competitors are going scratching around for a nickel. That puts you in a huge competitive advantage and growth position coming out of a downturn like that. If you are UBS, a big, large wealth management bank in Switzerland, and you're conservatively financed and you run your risk models in a way that allows you to generate good returns while taking low risk and your crosstown rival is basically in the same business, but takes a lot more risk and has lower returns and they slip on a banana peel during a small banking crisis and go bust. And you go in and pick up 25 billion of assets for two or 3 billion, you create a lot of value. And that's the lesson there is I think the stock market generally underappreciates companies that are overcapitalized because they view it as inefficient, which is completely incorrect. If you just look at Berkshire Hathaway, if people took that attitude towards Berkshire, they would say it's been run inefficiently over the course of its existence because it's always very well capitalized. And there are businesses out in the stock market that are overcapitalized, and we have a number of them in the portfolio and as part of our strategy to find these businesses like Samsung that can invest in EUV machines in a downturn when their competitors can't or buy airplanes in a downturn when their competitors can't. And that is a little bit of giving away the family jewels, so to speak, behind our strategy. But it is something that we think deeply about. It's a little bit of a needle in a haystack. We wish we could find $40 billion worth of companies that fit that bill perfectly. But that's pretty hard. We have to be very patient we have to wait for the right opportunity. We have to be able to identify them. And that's where we spend most of our time. That's excellent. One of the better answers to that question, because not only did you give a good response, you brought a couple other examples to really hammer at home. So I appreciate that, David. It's been excellent conversation, fascinating to learn more about the business. And pretty much from the jump, there were things that I did not realize, I did not appreciate about Samsung. So thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 